Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim. Today we're going to be speaking to journalist Samira Shackle about life and death in modern-day Pakistan. Samira, who is a frequent contributor to Prospect, has recently published her book Karachi Vice, in which she explores the city through the eyes of locals. There's the outspoken activist, whose work often puts her in danger, the committed journalist with a taste for risky scoops, and the ambulance driver for whom witnessing tragedy is a daily occurrence. Fast-paced and compelling, her book is an on-the-ground portrait of a city free from the usual clichés you read about Pakistan. Samira Shackle, thanks for joining us on the Prospect interview. Cool, thanks for having me. Um, you write in your book, Karachi Vice, that when you told people in the UK that you were visiting Pakistan, they would offer well-meaning comments about how brave you were. Pakistan certainly has reputation for violence, insecurity and extremism. And the city that you write about, Karachi, even more so, I think one of the figures in your book is that in one year there were 3,000 murders at one point, which is extraordinary. So why Karachi? Well, Karachi, because I have a familial connection there. Uh, it's where my mum grew up and was born and where that whole maternal side of my family is from. Um, so some of them have moved to the UK, obviously, but I still have lots and lots of family and, and family connections there. So I have that kind of pull towards Pakistan in general and, and Karachi specifically. Um, and then once I started spending time there about 10 years ago, I... Um, having initially been been drawn to it because of this familial connection, I just found myself even more drawn in because um, it's such a complicated place and there's so much going on that it kind of just seems endlessly full of stories and there's so much to unpick and that kind of kept me going back again and again um, in both a personal and professional capacity. Tell us more about the history of the city. Listeners may know uh, Lahore, for example, which is you know, famous for its Mughal history and its architecture, but maybe know a bit less about uh, Karachi. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, and I think it's something that people in, in Karachi feel quite um, 
acutely sometimes about the the sort of international image of the city or the fact it doesn't get as much attention in a way or when it does it's very negative um so karachi is uh, in southwestern pakistan it's on the coast uh, so it was a very strategically important port and big port city around it uh, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries uh, and when the partition of india happened in 1947 and created pakistan karachi was the capital of the new nation so that was where the the new government and everything was located um the the capital then subsequently moved to islamabad which is the modern capital of Pakistan that was a, a planned and built city which is much more kind of in the center of the country it's further north as Karachi is really at the kind of southern end and it was a real kind of mix of different the different ethnicities and backgrounds that, that of all the different um, provinces that make up Pakistan people from all those provinces converge in Karachi because it's the still remains the economic heart of the country and it was the it was the capital and it's a place where people move to and gravitate towards so whereas somewhere like Lahore is a bit more ethnically homogenous that's in situated in Punjab and it's broadly a Punjabi city is how it's sort of Karachi really is a kind of for better or worse a melting pot of people from all over Pakistan um, and, and also I guess more broadly from around the region there's lots of people from Afghanistan have made their way there too because it's sort of seen as a place where you might be able to make your fortune or find work or find opportunities. In the book, you tell the story of the city through a series of characters, people that you've met. Can you just tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. So one of them is a crime reporter called Zaleh. Uh, so he works for TV stations in Pakistan and reporting on crime in the city, which is an incredibly broad top topic, actually. It sounds kind of quite specific, but actually crime in uh, Karachi is so bound up with politics, it's bound up with terrorist violence, um, organised crime which effectively controls whole areas. So that was one of the people who I focused on, kind of gave a real lens onto the city. Another is Safter, who's an ambulance driver who um, kind of experiences a lot of these same things, the terrorist violence, the organised crime and so on, but from a completely different angle, which is sort of driving around and providing emergency first response care. Um, there's also Parveen, who is a young woman from uh, Liari, which is an area that's um, been very affected by gang war. So it's been effectively run by gangsters for big chunks of the last few decades. So she was a teacher and, and subsequently a kind of local community activist there. Um, there's also Siraj, who's a cartographer and urban planner who lives in an area called Arangi Town, which is quite a kind of remote area um, where the state hasn't really provided lots of the basic infrastructure that you might expect in the city. Um, he's sort of making maps of unmapped areas. And then the final person I focused on is a woman called Jannat who lives in a village at the edge of the city. And this is a place that um, kind of didn't, it really surprised me. Uh, I knew that there were these sort of urban rural settlements, but going there, I didn't realize quite how rural it was going to be, still be technically part of the city. And this is an area that's really under threat from, um, from property developers who are displacing villages in order to build um, lucrative developments. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the perception is that a lot of the violence um, in Pakistan comes from religious extremists, and there is indeed a, an attack on a Shia um, worshippers um, described in in your book but the other current that you mentioned the gang violence and the drug lords entwined with politics and political parties even was, is a really strong theme throughout the book it seems like it's, it's it's just an everyday part of the fabric of the city 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that when I first started spending time in Karachi around 2011, 2012, that was the thing that really struck me was just how, um, firstly, how many different facets there were to this urban conflict. It wasn't just one uh, one thing causing the violence, but also the way that crime was so intimately bound up with politics made it very difficult to see how it could ever be meaningfully tackled when you have power brokers, not just in local politics, but actually the, the parties kind of going all the way up to the national federal level of government, kind of having a relationship with violent street actors makes it very difficult to unpick and see a, a sort of clear way out. It's not as simple as you know, you you sort of crack down on terrorist networks and then it's sorted. It's a really kind of complicated web that's permeates all different levels and layers of society. And you mentioned Zillay and he's a fascinating character. He's the reporter who he seems to become, almost become addicted to covering the violence. And he, he, anyone who's watched any Pakistani television, uh, news television, will know that the crime and the violence becomes a kind of entertainment almost where the reporters are expected to take immense risks and go and interview very dangerous people be on the scenes of attacks very very fast um were you curious about talking to him because you were sort of worried about the sort of ethics of journalism and interaction with maybe your own journalistic practice yeah absolutely um i think the 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 media in pakistan was very very tightly controlled until 2001 when General Musharraf uh, decided to open it up to private companies. And then there was this huge explosion of private TV channels and they're all in a kind of ratings war. And there's all these 24 hour news channels which are really kind of up against each other to be the first on the scene. And as you say, it becomes a kind of spectator sport in a way. Uh, it's all about getting kind of the, the most access to the police raids or the gang war or whatever it is and being first on the scene. And there's not so much emphasis on follow-up or investigation um, and I think the media industry has kind of expanded faster than uh, than allows for, for kind of clear ethical guidelines um, so I was very interested in that professionally and also just personally as you say Zillow is very uh, quite hooked on it I think and he would say that himself um, that he's quite hooked on on the thrill of it he even described himself to me at, at several points as being like a drug addict that he kind of just wants the wants the rush and the, the busyness and the buzz and the kind of rushing around. And I've, I've actually known Zillay since um, since about 2015. So I, I wrote about him for The Guardian before before writing the book. It was that was the kind of piece that kickstarted the idea for the book and seeing him um, over these these five or six years as the the situation in the city has got noticeably calmer has been really interesting because I think most people are pretty relieved that the level of violence has reduced. And while on one level, sure, you know, he can obviously see rationally that it's better that things are a bit safer. He definitely has this kind of wistfulness about when, you know, the, the sort of glory days of, of feeling this sense of purpose and uh, status in being right at the front line of, of all of this drama. And he feels sort of worried that maybe his role as a crime reporter will become redundant if there's so much less crime. And while there seems to be less squeamishness in the sense that you'll see a lot more blood, frankly, on, uh, on, on the television mm -hmm. than you would say, say in Britain, there are other areas where people are more delicate, you know, describing the Taliban, for instance, sometimes described, you write, as activists rather than terrorists or a reluctance to, uh, to exactly uh, describe who, who the crime lords are. And, and so there are lines which, which 
um, which have to be tread, tread, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And they're quite, um, yeah, I think quite unexpected in in some ways, as you say. I That was something I noticed when first um, writing about the world of crime reporters, this use of the word activist instead of terrorist, which seems uh, from an outside perspective to me to, to be like a, a bit of a meaningless distinction. If everyone knows what you mean when you say activist, why don't you just say terrorist? But it's a sort of, it's a bit of a self-preservation thing, these invisible lines. And I think journalists in Pakistan and actually people more generally, um, although maybe it comes up in a, in a more direct way for journalists, are very used to this idea of self-censorship because you have, um, there's always been this kind of huge looming presence of the army in the background. So you, you know, you theoretically have free expression in the press, but there are lines that you know not to cross. You don't sort of say certain things about the military establishment and in particularly in the era when uh, terrorist violence was spinning so out of control, uh, which is a period covered in the book, um, you would choose your words quite carefully when talking about terrorist groups too. And somebody who saw the same kind of events from a different perspective was Sufter, the, the ambulance driver. Mm. And, and he had, has to have another kind of bravery, as it were, almost sort of blocking out the trauma that he experiences every day. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, actually. Um, he's a very uh, kind of funny guy, really animated, really um, full of life, uh, like talks a mile a minute and always cracking jokes and kind of jumping up to act out his anecdotes and really kind of full of energy. And then you talk to him and the things that he's been through and the things he's seen are just really unimaginable. And again, um, similarly to Zaleh, because the situation in the city is so much calmer now, life now and work now is um, much more manageable. But there was a big period of, of several years where he was going to, um, you know, multiple, the aftermath of multiple suicide attacks in a week, um, horrible things that, that you, you think kind of experiencing this just once would leave you with lasting scars. And yet you, you kind of keep, he, he keeps doing it and keeps going and doesn't really take the time to take stock in a way. Um, and there, he, he works for an ambulance service, which is run by a charity. With, there's no state ambulance service. Um, the ED Foundation is a huge philanthropic organization which runs these ambulances. Um, but talking to him and other ambulance drivers, you ambulance driver almost feels like a misnomer because it really is kind of, it's rescue work. But, you know, it, it goes far beyond providing pre-hospital medical care. It's kind of going into burning buildings and um, really quite extreme work for, for very little pay and at huge personal risk. Um, but this question, I think, about how people process trauma and, and kind of living with these terrible experiences day in, day out, really fascinated me when, when I was talking to all the people in my book because people have been through so much and still somehow find the fortitude to not just put one foot in front of the other but to keep putting themselves in this enormous danger to try and make things better. And you mentioned there that there's no state ambulance service and the question that keeps on coming up in the book is you know well where is the government where's the where you know from a British perspective people will be blaming the government for all these things but um, apart from the security services and the army which are which are very powerful there doesn't people seem to be left on their own pretty much. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, it's true across the country, but particularly in Karachi, which is a city that was um, under 500,000 people at the time of partition and is now over 20 million by most estimates. So it's really been an exponential growth in population and the services and the infrastructure just haven't kept pace. And so that goes from everything to, to the government hospitals, to the police, um, to the supply of basic amenities like water and electricity, it just hasn't really kept up. And there are these gaping chasms that have been left by the state. Um, and in some cases you have, um, you know, like the ED Foundation that I mentioned, a huge charity springing up to fill the gap. And in some cases you have um, much more malevolent forces like gangsters or uh you know mafias who will sell hydrant um, tankers of water to people um, at an extortionate rate because they can't get a main supply so you really do see uh, very starkly the effects of um the big holes left by the state the water battles that you describe are quite fascinating um water being a sort of a commodity that people are fighting are fighting over and you do have a passage when you describe one of the researchers uh names parveen rahman in the book which is called sahiba who documents the gang involvement in stealing water supplies. Her story is fascinating. Yeah, she was a very prominent um, social activist um, in, in Karachi, who I think did more than anyone else probably in, in really setting out how exactly these systems function. So people talk a lot about land mafias and water mafias, but she really with kind of ground research um, mapped out exactly what that meant and uh, you know the kind of government corruption and corruption at the water board that was very closely linked to um, criminal gangs siphoning off water and then selling it back to people and that she did that at huge huge um, personal risk and was eventually assassinated in 2013. Yeah I think that uh, I think that's a very serious question and and the answer of course is um not not good things that will, will come if um people who put their head above the parapet face such grave dangers i think that the murder of parin rahman in um in 2013 was particularly shocking because uh, although she had done this risky work in documenting water and land mafias predominantly she was a, a grassroots social activist you know her her big work was on um, community-led building and architecture and sewage systems, so getting unplanned settlements or areas that people had moved to without the government kind of um, providing amenities, teaching them how to provide amenities themselves and reducing deaths from poor sanitation by installing sewage systems. So it really was kind of unglamorous but hugely important and pioneering, globally pioneering work in um, local community-led development. So it was very, very shocking. Um, to when, when she was murdered. And I think that there is a real sense, I mean, it might be slightly better now um, just because terrorist violence and criminal violence has really reduced across the country since um, in the last kind of five or six years. But I do think there's a real feeling of vulnerability for people who are feminist activists, who are human rights activists, all manner of people um, who are sort of speaking out against the status quo or trying to improve things in one way or another really do feel an acute sense of threat and, and people are still having to, to sort of move abroad because they don't feel sufficiently protected. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So when you first moved to Pakistan about 10 years ago, you stayed with family, as you describe, in what could be fair to say, that, you know, the nicer part of town. But uh, in the book, you describe all the sort of the, the hidden places that you went to explore. Was that was that sort of an urge to go beyond the sort of the bubble that um, privileged people in general live in, but particularly in, in a country like Pakistan? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think as um... As a journalist, obviously, you want to go to where the where the most interesting things are happening and, and get to the get to the heart of it and talk to people who are really experiencing things in a in a more acute way. Of course, everyone in Karachi, when the security situation was so bad, everyone, even at the most privileged levels, were experiencing that and feeling it and having their lives affected in some way. But it is undeniably a very different thing if you're living in a, a sort of very comfortable house with a private supply of water and private supply of electricity and high walls and an armed guard it's although you might still be affected by the violence and instability at large it's very different to someone who lives in a very overcrowded densely populated under-resourced area and or an area that's controlled by gangsters for instance um so yeah i think i had a i had a sort of curiosity about what life was like there and for people experiencing um, the the conflicts in the city in different ways. And the other thing is that the Karachi is just so big that you can very easily, I think the first few months I was in Karachi, I've, I've barely left the, the more affluent areas, Defence and Clifton, which are effectively a city within a city. I mean, you could just stay there. And it was only, I mean, even, I still haven't been everywhere in the city and that's, you know, 10 years of, of regular quite lengthy trips there um and you know even um it was when I only when I was researching the book that I think I think I'd been to Orangi town where Siraj the map maker is based I think I'd been there once before and it's only really um researching the book that I started spending time there so it's almost like these kind of multiple cities all next to each other which then kind of um interact in these sometimes quite explosive ways but it's 
it's just um yeah almost mind-bogglingly big really as, as you say i described in the book watching the news from this very comfortable living room and it could be happening a million miles away but actually it's really not that far at all but life carries on as normal in one part of the city while another is effectively a, a battlefield and did you find it easy to get people to open up to you and, and to talk to you and, and was your sort of as it were insider outsider status helpful in that respect yeah, I think the insider outsider status was definitely helpful. I think um, I think people liked that I had some connection to Pakistan, that I had some um, that I had some sort of um, that that was in my in my background, and I had a connection. Um, I think that people are often once you start talking, quite happy to quite happy to share things but it was important when I was thinking about who to focus on and who to interview for the book it was important to for me to have people who would be um happy to talk in a certain way because not everyone is capable of or willing to recount in great detail things that come quite upsetting things that happened 10 years ago uh, so I was very lucky that that people did that but it was definitely um I think it was definitely a challenge at points um you know, sometimes people just weren't used to going over things or sometimes it had a kind of unexpected effect because people live with this stuff day in, day out and don't necessarily um, have the space to stop and take stock. And I think sometimes people would, would find it quite distressing to to be recounting things and kind of making it into a narrative for someone else, if that makes sense. Did you see any of yourself in Zille in the sense of, you know, you're having to go to the to the places which are uh, the most dangerous and the most um, difficult and uh, <laughs> excitement as well perhaps. Yeah perhaps I mean I don't think I have quite his appetite for risk. Um, some of the things he was describing to me I was really kind of eye-opening um, level of of risk and as a sort of print journalist who does like long projects I have the luxury of not kind of rushing around having to get to places and be right at the scene of it but I definitely did understand his pull towards the towards the conflict and the violence and the interest in 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 sort of understanding and and I suppose there's I, I could sympathize with what he you know the, the, the kind of status you get as a journalist and the, the fact that it gives you access to different places and different stories um, I think that that is um, you know going back to what we were saying before about wanting to go to the to the risky neighborhoods and so on. I think there's the as a journalist as a reporter you kind of have a have a good excuse to satisfy your curiosity and go to places you wouldn't otherwise. And you mentioned that the violence has diminished uh, quite a lot in the last few years. Why is that? So there was a police and army uh, crackdown. So led by the army, but the police were also part of it. Um, which started in uh, 2014 in earnest and that has been uh, it was a sort of multi-pronged um, multi-pronged attack that started in the in the north of the there was a military operation in the north of the country but that was coupled with um, sort of urban operations to uh, first focused on on terrorist groups and sort of cracking down on that whereas previously 
you might have a military operation in the north that then people would just go down to Karachi, which is very lawless and kind of take refuge there for a bit before they go back up to the northern areas. Uh, so it's kind of happened all simultaneously um, against terrorism and against organized crime and also against some of the more violent political movements. So it was a very bloody operation. I talk about it in the in the book uh, it involved mass scale extrajudicial killings and um, many would argue quite indiscriminate arrests. Um, but it does seem to have had an immediate effect on reducing the levels of violence. I mean, it is just, it's, it's noticeably different. Um, after about 2015, every time I went to Karachi, it seemed it was noticeably more safe, kind of bit, bit of a, a, a slackening of tension, a bit easier to move around um, and, and so on. And I think generally people feeling a bit safer. The, the, the cost of that is that you have um, the paramilitary force, the rangers, there's a very heavy presence still. Uh, so you have lots of men in uniform around the place and makeshift checkpoints and so on. But I think many citizens feel that that's a, that's a price worth paying to, to be able to go about their daily lives a bit more easily. And the civil society that you described still, um, people still making efforts to um, examine this corruption to your character, you know, the character Siraj, for example, who's uh, trying to map the city. You say he's still trying to do that. Yes. Yeah, he is. He's very, um, very civic minded person and really powering on with that work. And Parveen, the, the activist in Liari, is also a um, community activist. She's still... Um, very busily coming up with with different projects and so on so yeah there's a lot of activity and it, it's a funny moment I guess because in Karachi definitely things are a lot more stable than they were but I think in the country in general in Pakistan the army I mean the army always has a big role in public life but it's definitely increased even more in the last few years and so there is I think um, there's a sort of double thing um, because in Karachi, the security situation is definitely improved. It's safer. People can go about their daily business more without the risk of bomb attack or gunfire and so on. But the army has also in the country at large really increased its already big role. And so I think there is, um, certainly for people working more in the human rights space, a feeling of restricted expression and being sort of limited in, in what they can do and what they can um, what they can call out and so on. Uh, so it's a bit of a double-edged sword, I think. A complex picture, but a, a really fascinating one. Samira Shackle, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week.